The man stood preaching in the center of campus. And as he looked around, he began to condemn many that were gathered before him. He called out many who stood there who were dressed in what, what he might describe gaudiness. He called out many for worldliness. And as he noticed prominent leaders and teachers of the day, he accused them of theological liberalism. And he called everyone within earshot to repent of their pagan worship and idolatry. Now, as I describe that scene, many of you are thinking about this obnoxious, self-righteous, open-air preacher that so often ends up on your college campus. That is the vision that comes to your mind right now. But the preacher that I'm referring to is Jesus. Jesus is on the center of the temple's campus, and he is preaching and he is teaching so that all can hear him. He is on this beautifully, majestically constructed temple's outer court. And as you look around, you see massive stones, you see gold, you see what we would call worldliness. And Jesus stands there and condemns it. He is exposed in the section that we're looking at today as a whole, the context. He has exposed the worldliness of the crowds who just a few days earlier gathered around him and screamed, Hosanna, which means save us now, and now they are nowhere to be found. Why? In their worldliness, they were looking for a worldly king, and that wasn't Jesus he has exposed the leaders who, who are worshiping the idol of self as they flaunt their self-righteousness. He has put them on blast for their audacious dress. He has put them on blast for their long prayers before the people. Jesus has put them on blast for their idolatry. And as we saw last week, he has rebuked many of the teachers for their liberalism those who do not know the Scriptures but claim to, those who do not understand supernatural and they deny the power of God, they deny the resurrection. Here we find Jesus on the center of this campus confronting paganism, calling out sin. But it is the sin of the religious that he is confronting. Jesus has his most harsh words for the religious who are on the scene. Not the rebellious, not the tax collectors and the prostitutes. He's found in their homes eating with them. But out in public, open air preaching, Jesus is calling out the self-righteousness of the day. And that's what we see in our passage beginning in verse 38. First of all, we see a warning of righteousness before men. Notice verse 38. And in his teaching, again, Jesus walking through the courts of the temple, Jesus walking about the temple with his disciples, crowds are moving with him. Every now and then he interacts with the teacher. He's teaching. He says, beware, be cautious, be warned of the scribes. 
Now the scribes would have been standing there. We see the boldness and courage of Jesus to look around and say, y'all be careful of these folks. Y'all be careful of your teachers of the day. The scribes were the lawyers, the scholars who were given to the task of interpreting the scriptures and, and deciphering the views of the rabbis. But most often when Jesus says, beware of the scribes, he also includes the Pharisees in the gospels. And remember, the Pharisees were those who had created their own traditions and rules that they thought would keep them from breaking the law of God. But eventually, their rules and teachings became their law that overshadowed God's law. Their traditions meant more to them than the law of God. And so Jesus says, beware of these men. Notice, he, he points out, one of them may have walked by in this moment. He says, who, who like to walk around in their robes. Now, this would have been a prayer shawl that would have designated their authority as a teacher of the day. This would have been like a seminary prof or, or a Presbyterian Methodist preacher who just walked around all day in their long robes. And, and these robes were decorated or designed to show their authority. There would have been different tassels on them. And Jesus just points to them and he says, beware of these teachers walking around in their robes like they're somebody. Be warned of what they are doing, walking around like a bunch of peacocks around the temple. Jesus just calls them out in public. And he says, and they like greetings in the marketplace. You've seen them as they walk into the marketplace. They want everybody to, to move back. They, they even have folks who announce their arrival when they show up on the scene. They walk into the restaurant and everybody hushes and the hostess announces their arrival. The teacher is here. Everybody give reverence to this, this famous teacher of the day. Verse 39, and they have the best seats in the synagogues. There would have been benches around the floors of the synagogue, and the people would be seated or standing on the floor of the synagogue, but, but the teachers of the day, they wanted to be seated around in the benches, in places of honor. That's where those who, who know the Word of God, that's where the, those who are the most religious sit. And at the feast, they want to be up front. They want to be announced. They want to be mentioned in the events or the proceedings of the banquets. But notice, he gets to this point, who devour widows' houses. He's not pulling any punches here. Yeah, 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 they like to put on a show, and that's kind of disgusting. But what's most horrible about these teachers of the day is that they devour widows' homes or well-being. They, they devour their livelihood. You see, the Scriptures commanded the teachers to care for widows. Widows in this culture were left without an identity. They would have been left without security of finances or 
inheritance to give their kids. They would have been left without nothing in this culture. And, and teachers and the religious of the day, according to the scripture, were commanded to take care of them. But what are these self-righteous teachers doing? They devour. They eat up their houses. You see, one of the things a widow who had nothing could do is she could take out a loan from the temple. But what that meant is that she would be indebted to the temple for the rest of her life. And that was a sin. <laughs> that wasn't supposed to be something that was, was to be done. The temple was to care for widows. Many elderly, they would have been encouraged to sign over their inheritance before they die as an offering or an act of worship to God. And often they left their family with nothing once they died. These teachers devour the most vulnerable in the culture. This is like my grandmother who sat at home watching TBN and finding out years later upon watching this same preacher week after week, week, day after day, she had given thousands of dollars to him because he had, had convinced her through a TV screen that she would inherit the blessings of the Lord. These men are first century charlatans, health wealth preachers who are devouring the homes of widows. But notice what they also do. And for pretense or recognition to be seen by men, not by God, they make long prayers. You could also approach one of these teachers and ask them to pray for you. And, and, and you could even pay for him to pray for you. And everyone around would stop and listen to his long, lengthy prayer for you. And Jesus stands up and says, get away from them. Move away. Beware of these wolves in their pretty fleece, sheep's clothing. They exist to devour you and destroy you. This kind of righteousness among leaders always brings about the full fury of Jesus. Notice he says they will receive greater condemnation. How scary is that? They will receive a more severe evaluation and judgment by a holy God. Now, in James 3, we read that not many should become teachers because we will incur or receive a greater judgment for God. And there is that warning for anyone who would handle the Word of God, you better make sure you know what you're doing. You better make sure you get it right. You better make sure you honor God by teaching the Word of God. But the warning, more than anything, is this. Your position of authority as a teacher so often leads to self-exaltation. And that is a great danger when you begin to lead people away from God, away from Jesus to yourself. You will be evaluated for doing that. Is your ministry about you or is it about Jesus? The position, the authority, the knowledge you have, the role you have as a teacher can lead to a damning self-righteousness. But that can be a danger for all of us in light of anything that we do for God. 
That temptation is always there to use the things of God as a platform for self rather than a spotlight for God, where we begin to think that the things we do for God are meant to bring us honor. Like my Jesus post, see everything that I do for Jesus in the privacy of my own home as I post it. You see the hypocrisy in that? You can go live into my prayer closet. Insta it. Let me lead you in a devotion for the day. Like it. Share it. That's dangerous because that can become about you and the world and ministry can exist to prop up your righteousness, not the glory of God. Now, he says they devour the widows, but our self-righteousness can also devour others. And the reason is because we pervert the gospel. When you prop yourself up in righteousness and make yourself the standard, when you say everyone's genuineness in the church should be evaluated by my level of commitment, let me list all the things that I do around here. And if you can't reach my level of commitment, then you must not love God as much as I do. And you become the standard. You actually become the gospel by which everyone in the church is evaluated. You have to agree with my secondary theological views, my political opinions, the way that I parent my kids, my views of education, my ways of evangelism, my brand of Christianity, the conferences that I go to. You have to like and put your stamp on them to be accepted by me. And, and if you're accepted by me, that must mean you're accepted by God. And we begin to subtly communicate that when we become the standard and not Jesus. And Jesus has harsh words toward it. You're preaching a false gospel leading others to hell. I was reading through the woes that Jesus gives the self-righteous teachers in the gospel. And I sort of summarized what he says to the Pharisees in the gospel of Luke. He says, woe to you, which is be damned, by the way. Go to hell. That is the literal translation. He says, you are blind guides, and you weigh down the weary, and you shut the door of heaven in people's face. And you are headed to hell, and as you make disciples, you make disciples of hell who are worse off than yourself. As blind guides, you are one step away from the path to heaven, and so everybody following you is at least two steps away from the path, and you're leading people to hell because you've become the standard and not God's Word, God's law, and ultimately not Jesus. And so there's a warning. Let it sink in. There's a warning about self-righteousness before men, but then he gives us this beautiful example of genuine sacrifice before God. Notice he goes to the treasury here, verse 41, and he sits down opposite, across from it, and Jesus begins to watch people give their offerings in the temple. Now, there's no pressure there. <laughs> if you know who that is, the Savior, the Son of God, 
as he peers in on what people are, are giving in their offering. And Jesus is the audience for the worship that day. The offering for the gifts. Now, the treasury would have been in the court of women, and it would have been in a place where both men and women and just about anybody could get to it. And so no one would be restricted from this offering box. Got to make that money. Put it out there where everybody can get to it. Now, on top of the offering box, there would have been 13 shofar horns. And so when you poured your offering into the offering box, everybody could hear it. As it traveled through those horns down into the offering box. And notice he watched people putting money in and many rich people put in large sums. They are bringing bags of money so everybody can see. And as they pour their bags in, everybody hears the clanking. Everybody hears the rattling. And the Pharisees at times would blow horns when the most wealthiest would show up with their offering. They would ring bells. Look who's here. Wait till you hear these coins rattle this box. Just wait till you see and hear this offering. And so while that commotion is going on, Jesus seated there watching it. Imagine what's going through his heart. Imagine what's going through his mind. And then a poor widow arrives and no one would have seen her. She would have been dirty, having nothing to her name, walking up to this offering box. She would have probably been bumped and pushed out of the way by some wealthy person with their coins and bags. What are you doing here? And she shuffles up and manages to drop two coins in one of the horns. And no one heard it. No one saw it, and she moved away. Except Jesus says, hold on, guys. I'm about to show you a powerful picture of sacrifice. And his disciples would have been saying, who, where, what? Let's look around. And you see all of this excitement going on. Where is the sacrifice? The poor widow, he points to who came and put in two copper coins, which make a penny. What she put in that day is one sixty-fourth of a denarius, which is one-eighth of a cent. The translation says it equals a penny. This is actually probably less than that. It would have been two little flakes of coins, and no one heard them. They may, they may not even made it down into the box. You know how your coins get stuck in the drink machine? Well, y'all don't do that anymore. Use credit cards and cash. But, but used to, they, the coin would get stuck and wouldn't go down. And her little flakes probably rested in the top of the box. Maybe it would have never even been counted. But notice verse 43, he calls his disciples to him and he says, Truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all who were giving to the offering box. You see all these people, you see all this money. Look right there. The widow, you don't even know her name. Nobody announced her arrival. She just gave more than anybody. And his disciples said, when? When did that happen? 
Did she give somewhere else? Did she give another day? Did she give herself into poverty? That's why she's dressed the way she does, and she's given more than anybody given? He explains, he says, for they all contributed out of their abundance, their wealth, their riches, but she gave out of her poverty And in putting in the two flakes of coins, she gave gave everything she had to live on. There was no noise, no clang, but this poor woman gave it all on that day, and all she had was nothing. And she gave it. She had nothing when she got there, and she left with nothing. It wasn't the quantity of the gift It was the quantity of the sacrifice, which was everything. And it was the opposite. He puts puts her here in the story to contrast her with the religious leaders of the day. She is the exact opposite. No one saw her. There was no announcement, no bells, no horns. There would be no plaques in her name put up in the temple. Glory to God, widow Susie gave all she had to the church building campaign. No plaques with her name on it. She wouldn't be in the giving brochure as we describe the ways to give. She wouldn't be mentioned. She wouldn't be there. She wouldn't be noticed. But Jesus points to her giving as heroic. She gives more than anyone. And this is the issue here. When we think about self-righteousness, the question is, are you giving to be seen by men or are you giving because you know you're seen by Jesus? Because that determines how you give and it determines how you serve and it determines the level of commitment in your life to the gospel. When you ask the question, am I giving to be seen by men or am I giving knowing I'm seen by Jesus? Because when you're giving to be seen by men, you're giving your service, the things you do will be calculated and comparative. You will calculate what you give if it's only for men. And you will compare yourself to others just to see, am I giving enough? How do I know if I'm doing enough? How do I know if I'm giving enough? Well, let me look around and compare myself to other people. That's the way self-righteousness works. I've got to give and do enough to make sure that I'm on the level of a really elite, committed church member. And so let me look around and see what I can do out of my abundance of righteousness. And you will do just enough if that's what you're asking. You know how that works in your life. I'm going to do just enough to make sure the people I'm around think I'm doing enough. That's self-righteousness. That's about you so that others would see you. But if it is about Jesus, if Jesus is the offering, the audience, you're not worried about how great the offering is. And you're not worried about who sees you or doesn't see you. That's not even on your brain. That's not even something you're thinking about. And everything is on the table. Nothing is calculated. You're not comparing yourself to others because you believe you can never give enough to compare to his worth. Before Jesus, who is the most worthy, who is the most valuable, and you come to give, and you come to serve, if it is all about Him, there's no restrictions to what you give. None. 
And here's the thing about Jesus. His evaluation of your service and your giving. Here's the thing. It is way more intense than the eyes of men. You got you to know that. Jesus' judgment of how you serve and what you give is way more intense than any man you may look around and try to please in your acts of service. And here's why. Because he's not fooled by some amount of giving or serving. It doesn't fool him. No, he sees your heart and he sees why you do it. And so his evaluation of what you're doing is way more severe than anybody around you. But it's also way more gracious because he's not looking for perfection. He's looking for your heart. A heart that says, I wish I could give it all. I, I would give it all. You are worth giving it all. How can, can my sacrifice how can my risk, how can my gifts compare to your worth? I would give it all, Jesus. Show me what I should give. Show me what I should do. Who is your audience? That is the question. Is it Jesus or men? Notice Mark 13, verse 1. I, I don't know if I told you we were going to look at these verses, but we are. And as he came out of the temple, one of the disciples said to him, Look, teacher. What wonderful stones. Some of you were settling in. You were getting ready to go, weren't you? I hear it. Three more verses. We'll be done. One of his disciples said, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones, what wonderful buildings. We talked about this earlier. 35 acres of massive granite stone buildings and gold plated worship centers. Look at this place, Jesus. Isn't this amazing? Now think about the irony there. This whole section, Jesus has said, this place is defunct. This is an abomination to God. There is no repentance going on here, no worship. It's like a, a fig tree with all these wonderful leaves and the, no fruit on it. It's a mountain between God and men. The teachers are, uh, they're foolish. They don't know the scriptures. They don't know the power of God. And the disciples say, isn't this place amazing? Look what they've done with the steps, Jesus. Look how welcoming the columns are outside. It's amazing. And I imagine Jesus is going, oh, you, man. Still don't get it. And so with severity, he says, do you see these great buildings? Let me tell you about these great buildings. There will not be left one stone, one little pebble of this granite and this gold that you see before you. There will be nothing left. It will be thrown away. It will be discarded in a trash heap. That's what I think about these wonderful buildings. And it happened in 70 AD. The temple was raised to the ground. But this place where men were to meet with God's glory is overshadowed with the glory of men. And Jesus hates it. Now imagine all the things that Jesus could rail against in the contemporary American church. Imagine, imagine. Look what they've done with the buildings, Jesus. Now we like to say that because we meet in a pathetic warehouse. So we're a little bit self-righteous about that. 
But as we plan for buildings, they can take the place of the presence of God. Programs can take the place of people. And it's not the person in front of you with whom you're ministering to that matters. It's the program. Good leaders can turn into celebrities who think they're indispensable to the mission. The mission can be to market the brand where we make sure everybody knows our church name, but eventually they know our church name, but they do not know the person and work of the name of Jesus. It's scary stuff that we have to protect ourselves from. And many would look around and say, these things are so impressive. If you go back to the 70s, early 2000s, the buildings we built as churches, people stand around. Those things are impressive, amazing, state-of-the-art. But how many of them would Jesus want to raise to the ground? But that's not the question today. I know you're getting all self-righteous right now. So, so let's correct that in my heart, in your heart. It's not the buildings. It's what in your life needs to be torn down. What in your life has turned into a monument of self-righteousness? Good things in your life that have become about you that overshadow the glory of Christ. Is it your church resume? Where you look back on your life and you say, I started, I started in the slums of Frontline and I worked my way up to the kids' ministry, and then I led a BFG. We hosted a BFG for years in our house. I became a deacon. I was on the women's leadership team, and now I've gotten to a point where I'm in emeritus status, emeritus status, church member. means I've done my time. Look around. All of the great things that I've done. Well, here's the question today. Would Jesus walk up and say, look at it, now let's tear it down? Because it was about you. May God save us from that. Is your life legacy about the great things done for Jesus or is it just about Jesus? That's an important question. Do you want people to stand around at your funeral and say, he did a lot of great things for Jesus? Or do you want people to stand around at your funeral and say, this is about Jesus? What do you want? The, one of my favorite quotes and I remind myself of this daily, is preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. And I want it on my tombstone. Make Danae do it, please. <laughs> I want my tombstone to not even have my name on it. Hers can be on there, the other side. But I just want it to say, I want it to be blank. Preach the gospel, dead, forgotten. That's what I want. Now, it's hard for me to get there. <laughs> That's what I want more than anything. So how do you tear down self-righteousness in your life? Well, first of all, Jesus has to be the standard, not you. And you're constantly in the Word of God. And you're constantly before Him, reminding yourself of His character, His perfection. And you say, I don't have anything to flaunt before men because I am bankrupt of righteousness. You start there. Jesus is the standard, not you. And then Jesus is the treasure that you get for your poverty. We don't just give out of our poverty. We give Jesus our poverty. And when we give Him our sinful poverty he gives us his riches in righteousness we trade our poverty for his riches we trade my sin for his cross we trade my unrighteousness for his righteousness we trade 
our pathetic ragtag prayer shawls that are like walking around with dirty toilet paper draped over us for his glorious perfection when we will say, I am spiritually bankrupt and he is all I need. That's how you rid yourself of self-righteousness that is damning by Jesus. The degree you make yourself the standard, you will refuse his, him as the standard, his righteousness. And the degree you are reminded of your poverty, you will delight in his riches. And then you get to the point where you say, my prayer is that men would only see Jesus. If you're here today and you think that you're getting to heaven by the good things you're doing, guess what you will do before men? You will make much of all the good things that you're doing. But if you think you're getting to heaven only because of Jesus, guess what you'll do? You'll make much of Jesus. And that's how it works. And so the question is, and it's two questions, and they're nearly the same. Who sees you right now? Men or Jesus? Who do you care about seeing you today? Others or Jesus? And who do men see in your life? You or Jesus? Is it the you show or is it the Jesus show? Is it your sacrifices or is it his sacrifice?